Hi there, today's March 3rd, 2014, and this is Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 9. Mount Gox's Lukewarm Wallet. On today's show, we'll talk about the Mount Gox situation, covering the history of recent events, the crisis strategy document that was leaked this week, theories on what really could have happened, the outlook for Mt. Gox, Bitcoin exchanges, and Bitcoin in general. In addition to that, we'll talk about Neo and B's opening in Cyprus and new decrease in transaction fees. If you like the work we're doing and you'd like to support the show, please go to epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips for our tipping address. Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, Episode 9, a weekly podcast about the latest news in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. My name is Sébastien Couture. I'm a Canadian-based user. I'm sorry, I'm not based. I'm originally from Canada and based in France. I'm a user experience designer and developer. And I'm also the founder of Bitcoin Talks Lille. And I'm Brian Fabian Crane. I'm originally from Switzerland, but live in Berlin, and I run the Bitcoin Startups Berlin group. And I'm kind of involved in a variety of Bitcoin projects. How are you doing today, Brian? Yeah, good. I just got back from a wedding. So, well, I'm still in Switzerland, but the wedding was in, in, the, in the mountains, in Klosters. And uh, it was very interesting. So it, it, was, it was very interesting to see the kind of knowledge of Bitcoin there, which is something that I completely did not expect. Um. So, so I, yeah, let me just briefly tell you about that. So yeah. we had, you know, the, the first evening I was sitting with uh, two of my cousins and, you know, they're in their early 20s. And, you know, I, I didn't know they were, they knew about Bitcoin at all, but both of them, you know, no, had, you know, pretty solid knowledge of Bitcoin. They both have some Bitcoins. And so that was um, very interesting. And then my other cousin was, of course, there. I, I mentioned, mentioned him once before. So he has a, a company they do uh, kind of mobile tools for mobile development. Yeah, yeah, I know. We bought a whole bunch of the of the gear. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so of course he uh, you know, he knows uh, quite a lot about Bitcoin and uh, he accepts Bitcoin. And now the guy who got married he has a as this kind of a side thing, he has this restaurant together with another cousin and a friend, so the three of them have this restaurant in Basel. And I didn't even know about this, but they're accepting Bitcoin. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they haven't done any publicity about it. And my brother was telling me like two days ago, and I was like, hey, do you, you know they're accepting Bitcoin there? And so it was funny because, I, you know, I was talking to a lot of people and there's just so many like knew about it and very interested in it. And a lot of people had like really, really positive views about it too. And so, so did, did, did you, do you have, are you in close contact with these cousins of yours or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're like reasonably close. Yeah, okay. so I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on CoinMap and I'll post it on Reddit too. Okay. So uh, because no, they haven't done any of that. No, I was asking because you know, maybe maybe they've been reading your newsletter. And, no, no, but, completely uh, independently. I know oh, Florian really? reads. I know Florian reads my newsletter. The guy from um, the, the Ghost Lab. Yeah. But uh, the others, no, they completely independently. Really? And all, my other cousins too, the okay. ones who were sitting at my table and they got interested, nothing to do with me. So that's did they know that you were involved in Bitcoin and you had a podcast and all this? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, cool. I mean, some of, some of them knew, I mean, uh, but for the most part, no. 
<laughs> That's really strange. So, it's in your DNA. It's in your family's DNA. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin runs through your veins. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. <laughs> cool. Uh, and so, that, is this like um, is this kind of typical in Switzerland? I don't know, since it's like known for its banking and such. Perhaps it's, <laughs> maybe um, there's a developed Bitcoin ecosystem there. I mean, I, I know there are quite a few companies here, and there's there, there is a, I think there's a fairly vibrant Bitcoin community, and there's also there are a lot of people here who uh, have kind of a lot of influence. I think, you know, there's there are some uh, was it, you know, for example, the Monetas guys, their their company is located here, uh, so there's an open transaction. Then I, I know that if you they were thinking about relocating there, then the guy who uh, um, he did the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin JS, and I think he works for Ripple, is Stefan Thomas. So he reused coins. I think he made that. He's he is Swiss, although I think he lives in San Francisco now. There's, so there's a, quite a few, and I also read there's a company. I think they're producing their own ATMs, uh, and they're gonna launch those soon and there are there's an atm in geneva and there was one in zurich temporarily yeah so there's there's you know a bit but yeah it was very surprising i totally didn't expect that cool and so what were you able to discuss with them i mean what 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 kind of conversations did you have um so we just talked kind of generally about Bitcoin and with, with my two cousins. And then I also talked with the guy who has the restaurant and I kind of asked him about how they do it. And I think that is a bit of a mess apparently. Okay. Because they, they haven't, they haven't, I, I told them they should just get a, a payment, uh, you know, payment processor like BitPay or something. Yeah, like and I BitPay. think they're doing it kind of manually at the moment. And uh-huh. But yeah, it's. Were they aware of the uh, Mt. Gox story? Yeah, yeah, no, people definitely. A lot of people were aware of it, and of course, yeah, I got asked about it too because I, you know, end up speaking about Bitcoin quite a lot. Yeah, uh, but you know, people weren't too. You know, they would just ask. They're kind of open, and you know, I tell them like, you know, it's obviously it's terrible. Yeah. But it's mainly terrible for the people who have money in there. I don't think it's terrible for Bitcoin. I mean, that's basically my view of of the Mt. Gox situation. I, I don't think this matters in the medium term. Well, maybe we can get into well, it. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, just briefly before we get into that, uh, I'm going to be having my meetup on the 13th. So meetup number two of Bitcoin Talks Lille. If you're in Northern France or Belgium or Paris or, and you want to attend, it's going to be at 9.30 on the 13th. And I'm going to be doing a talk probably about Mt. Gox to try to demystify everything that's been happening and uh, explain in simple terms what's going on. And hopefully by then we'll know a bit more. I also want to explain uh, transaction malleability also uh, and maybe doing some sort of um, recap of the conference that we attended in Berlin. So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, so far got about 10 people attending so far and there's still 13 days left so excited about cool. that yeah 
That sounds good. Do you have any other talks lined up? No, uh, I do. I did notice that there are some people that signed up for the meetup that are that seem to be quite involved in Bitcoin um, or inter- at least interested in it. So uh, I'm going to contact them and see if they want to do a talk. Yeah. But yeah. so far, I'm the only one. Cool. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah. So speaking of. <laughs> Yeah, Mount Cox. Like, Actually, I don't, I don't think we should talk about Mount Cox. Let's just talk about the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've heard about it. Yeah, we've heard about it so oh, so much already. Uh, yeah, week after week. It's old news. Week. It's old news. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, so obviously uh, this has been the story on everybody, everyone's mind and everybody's been talking about it. If you listen to any of the other shows on LTB, they've been talking about it. Uh, the mainstream media has been talking about it. Everybody's talking about the story. Um, so we, we, yeah. we've, we've been we've been talking about it for the last two weeks now. First, uh, first time we talked about it was in Berlin two episodes ago when we were with, with uh, Johan and we discussed uh, what was then well yeah transaction mailability right which which is interesting because that's kind of moved into the background now yeah I and last week we we discussed it as things were kind of unfolding and Mark was stepping down uh, from the Bitcoin Foundation no not even no it was no. just they uh, were that was this week yeah. that was all this week Maybe let's let's just briefly. I think we can briefly go about through the events, and yeah. then there's still a lot of uncertainty about what actually happened. So we can talk a bit about some scenarios. Yeah, do some uh, speculation. So this week, uh, so as as we turned on our computers Monday morning here in Europe, at least. Uh, the news that was coming out on Monday was that uh, Mark Carpellis, the CEO and um, the CEO of Mt. Gox, was re- resigning from his position as a board member of the Bitcoin Foundation. And then later that morning, all of the tweets got removed from Mt. Gox's account. So this kind of further fueled speculation that there was something wrong and that something was going on. And we saw the price kind of adjust to that and the price kind of started going down uh, as of Monday. And then as a response to everything that had been happening over the last few weeks, uh, there was a joint statement that was uh, released on the Coinbase blog. And this joint statement, uh, when I say joint statement, so it was... um, written in coordination by the founders of Coinbase, the CEO of Kraken, the CEO of Bitsnap.net, the CEO of BTT China, CEO of Blockchain.info, and the CEO of Circle. And so this statement sort of was meant to distance these actors from whatever violation of trust Mt. Gox had been... uh, um, involved in. Is there anything you want to say about this, this statement, Brian? Yeah, I think the statement's not that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just them basically trying to kind of contain the negative PR. But um, I think when it got interesting, really interesting, is the day after, you know, when they started. So that was on Tuesday. They started 
halting the trading. Right. So uh, before, you know, as we remember, you couldn't withdraw money. So you couldn't take out Bitcoins. You can take out fiat money, but you could still trade. And you had this weird phenomena where you had this Bitcoin builder exchange where you could try to basically trade trade around balances inside Mount Gox yeah. against Bitcoins outside of Mount Gox. So now they, they shut down trading completely. Uh, they shut down uh, the website too at one point. I think that was on, on when, Thursday, Tuesday too. That was also on Tuesday, yeah, later that oh, day. Yeah. And then uh, I think then it got really interesting because then we had this uh, document was leaked and it was called uh, the crisis strategy draft, I think. And it was it was by a guy named, uh, or it goes by the kind of uh, pseudonym called Two Bit Idiot. And he has a Tumblr where he's been posting a lot of kind of, he's been breaking a lot of the news about Mount Gox. Yeah, uh, I think so. Who is who is this guy? The two bit idiot. His name is Ryan Selix. Selix. He, he's a. I think he's a MBA student at MIT, and uh, he's also involved in some sort of Bitcoin things. But um, so about this crisis strategy document. I mean, I think that is really interesting. There was so much information in there, but I just want to quote one sentence. So they, in, at one point, they write in there, at this point, so right now, I mean, 744,408 Bitcoin are missing due to malleability-related theft, which went unnoticed for several years. The cold storage has been wiped out due to a leak in the hot wallet. So this document basically tried to explain uh, what the situation was and had kind of an action plan going forward. Uh, but of course, we didn't know before that Bitcoins had been stolen, had been missing. It was just kind of a suspicion. And in there, for the first time, kind of a black on white, they wrote that they pay basically all of their money, except 2,000 Bitcoins. So all of their Bitcoins had been stolen and uh, that they also had a pretty massive uh, liabilities in in dollars, so their yeah. their liabilities were a lot bigger than their assets, even on the dollar side. So I just I'm reading this quote here, and what it, it it's contradictory to me. The cold storage has been wiped out due to a leak in the hot wallet. Yeah, this is funny because <laughs> I yeah no no it's a great point. So, so let's so just, I let's, actually, let's just explain first what cold storage is, right? So cold storage is essentially a Bitcoin private and public key that have been generated on a computer that has never touched the internet and continues to not touch the internet. So for instance, you can have a system on which you have a Bitcoin QT client um, and you can generate addresses on that system, and but, but that system is not connected to the internet. So you can send money to that address but to get the money out, you either either have to take that cold storage and make it hot. So by that we mean connected to the internet, or you have to use. Uh, I don't know if you can do it with a QT client, but you can do it with Armory. You can use a USB key to initiate the transaction on a computer that's connected to the internet. Take that transaction, move it from on the USB key to the hot wall to the cold wallet, rather uh, sign it with a private key, and then reintroduce it onto the 
hot uh, uh, computer, so the computer that's connected to the internet. So it, by saying that the cold storage has been wiped due to a leak in the hot wallet, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, it's funny because we had a Bitcoin meetup in Berlin the same day, and because the talk was canceled, we did this kind of impromptu Q&A session on Mt. Gox. And so at one point I was like, well, but one possibility perhaps is they didn't have a cold storage at all. You know, people were like laughing and then that's how they got hacked. Because of course you think like this gigantic amount, how would it be possible? But you know, I mean, from reading this, I completely agree with you. It's kind of inconsistent. If it's a cold storage, then how, how on earth would it leak? Yeah, and it was Andreas Antonopoulos that said on his on his blog uh, right after this document was released, who pointed out it a leak from cold storage is a contradiction in terms. So it's either it wasn't a leak, either it wasn't cold storage. Like you, you yeah. can't say that this is cold storage if it's not, and you can't say if it's a leak if it's cold. Yeah, let's talk also about the other things because there were some really right. interesting yeah. other things in that document. So. It, I would say, there was two things I particularly want to talk about. One was this plan. So if you look at this from my perspective, you read this document and say, if their situation is really like this, uh, that's a horrific situation you'll never get out of. You know, they ha- absolutely are completely insolvent. There's nothing to salvage at this point. But if you read the document, it seems they're of a different opinion. It seems what they implied there was... What we need to do now is we need to rebrand the site. So from Mount Gox, you're going to go to gox.com. We make a new logo. And, uh, you know, and then we'll basically relaunch and it'll be cool. And uh, they also make this case that if Mount Gox collapses, it would be horrible for Bitcoin. It would basically probably end Bitcoin or at the very least it would throw it back five years in time. So what's needed right now is that kind of major Bitcoin holders step up and put money into Mt. Gox to prevent this, which is just mind-blowingly absurd to me. <laughs> Why on? Yeah. So, but it's, you know, they, they're taking on a, you know, we're too big to fail kind of attitude. Uh, exactly, but yeah. it's retarded. It makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, you, you say it's retarded, <laughs> and I agree, but... Um, if you listen to the uh, if you listen to the Charlie Schremer interview on LTB, this is what he says. He agrees with this. He says, "I you know." know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to. I have to say, I've heard a lot of people, like sort of senior Bitcoin people, or like veteran Bitcoin people, talk about the Mt. Gox situation, and I'm often kind of amazed in on many, many levels. One is that they, it's true, some of them really think seem to think that there's some systemic risk with Mt. Gox. I don't see that at all. And the other thing is that they kept being really delusional that, you know, like this can be rescued and there'll be a turnaround and Mt. Gox will come back. And it just does not make sense to me. See, uh, this is where our points, uh, our, our opinions differ because I, I, I don't think that uh, Mt. Gox uh, falling is the end of Bitcoin, Okay, so that kind of the usual point of view where like it's too big to fail. We need to put money into this and like make sure that it stays up because otherwise, you know, Bitcoin will fall. I don't think so. I think it's going to have certain setbacks. It's going to cause certain setbacks. Uh, I've got a blog post that we're going to put on the blog tomorrow where I – well, maybe even tonight uh, before the episode gets released where uh, I kind of give my opinion about this. But I don't think it's out of the – possibility that 
they do try to rebrand as Gox.com. I mean, if if they don't go to prison, there, there's no reason for Mark Carpellis not to turn around and start a new exchange with these 2,000 Bitcoins and this other liquidity that they have. No, like, no, I, no I, but these are not his Bitcoins. These are Bitcoins of the company Mt. Gox. They're not his. He can't just take those and say, okay, well, I'll take the assets, the liabilities that I'll leave in the company. That's completely criminal. That's You cannot do that. Right, yeah. Uh, that's what Charlie Schramm said. on the, He was on Let's Talk Bitcoin. He talked about this. And it was just makes no sense whatsoever. So he said, you know, uh, actually, it was about this uh, crisis strategy document. And he said, well, but they still have uh, $30 million in fiat assets. You know, they can do something with that. And that's just completely wrong because they have, well, okay, they have $30 million in assets, but they also have $50 million in liabilities and like seven hundred thousand dollars in liabilities you can't just ignore the liabilities and say okay but i still have some money in the bank does not work so but let's just let's just keep going through this keep going this timeline and we'll we'll get back to all this so just you know as a kind of a hint that the that they're actually thinking of rebranding to gox.com it was confirmed on Tuesday that uh, this domain investor, his name is Andy Booth, that he could he had sold Gox.com to Mark Carpellis like within the last few days, I think. So was it was it that day or was or, it last? No, week? I think it was a bit earlier. It was right. like two weeks ago or something. Okay, but, but very recently, yeah. So, anyways, so on on Tuesday, most of you would have noticed that the price of Bitcoin just kind of plummeted. Uh, it was trading at below 400 euros uh, for most of yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and then Mt. Gox made a statement on its website uh, claiming that it made a conscious decision to halt to halt uh, transactions, right? And they also said it was to protect its users, which yeah. is really funny. Yeah. So then on Wednesday, there was a new statement on mountgox.com, which is still up on the homepage, saying that uh, Carpellis is still in Japan and he's working on this. And he also posted a picture of his cat somewhere. <laughs> Mark Carpellis' cat says hello. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, um, that's not on the website anymore. It's not. Or Let's see. No, no, that is still on the website. You're right. But there's also... Some kind of um, oh yeah legal notice that they're starting a procedure of civil rehabilitation, whatever that is. Okay, so this is new. This is from like today or yesterday, perhaps March second. March second, yeah, I, I guess today, yeah. Okay, so it says announcer regarding an application for commencement of a procedure of civil rehabilitation. It's also in I mean, Japanese. I think, uh, let's yeah, let's go. So. If you keep going in the timeline, right? I mean, yeah, some other business plan was leaked. I, I read it. I think you read it too. It's, I mean, they don't even mention any of these problems. And it's just, you know, they talk about expanding the business and have this typical kind of startup yeah. um, growth rate, of uh, exponential growth rate and talk about how much money they'll make. I mean, I guess we can just... 
I don't think there's too much meaning to that. Yeah, but it's interesting that the business plan reads as if it was written completely independently of everything that's been happening. Like, nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. mentioned. I mean, it was, right? I think they, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go again towards the, what exactly is going on and we can come back to yeah. that. Uh, but then on Friday, they filed for bankruptcy protection. So that's that's kind of the notice, I think, that's on the website too, refers to that. And um, bankruptcy protection, I think, is similar to in the U.S., there's something called Chapter 11. So that's when a, a company sort of says, okay, we're, we're insolvent and our liabilities are much higher than our than our assets. And That's an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> you could say that. And I think the idea of it, though, is that they might have some sort of, you know, could do some kind of restructuring. But, uh, of course, I think to do a restructuring, you'd actually have to get the approval of the creditors, which seems impossible. I mean, it just seems absurd, the whole idea of a restructuring here. But... Um, the interesting thing is, we still don't know what exactly happened here, because they, in this leaked uh, crisis strategy draft, they essentially attributed this to a transaction mailability related theft, which they claimed started in 2011, I think. And this is and what they've been saying all along, like since since the beginning of this whole deal, they've been blaming Bitcoin, the protocol. Yeah. Yeah, they they did start doing that, exactly. But the thing is, it's not so clear whether that's really a true or plausible explanation. It, there's a lot of questions around that and uh, a lot of inconsistencies. And we don't know. We still don't know. So we can, we can perhaps go through a few scenarios, through possibility of what really is going on mm-hmm. underneath. So just in, in, in relation to the, trans, the transaction liability theft uh, scenario, if if you if you calculate the amount of bitcoins that would have had to been stolen in order for that to be true, like if if they say that it started in two thousand eleven, that's an insane amount of bitcoins per day. Yeah, I mean it's it's more than seven hundred thousand bitcoins. And which now apparently is more than eight hundred thousand after yeah, these well, other documents that were released. It's it's I it's mean, crazy to think that that exactly the, that no that this would have been unnoticed. I mean, unless it's, it's you're, completely preposterous. It's slightly like, incompetent. It's so absurd. It's like mind blowing. Like it's, it would be like. I've been living since 2011 in this house, and I didn't notice how someone stole the house, and it's not been here anymore. Yeah. But I keep living here. I haven't even noticed there's no doors and windows anymore, and it, it's just like that level of absurdity. Um, and the transaction mailability also kind of implies that uh, you know transaction mailability theft would probably be small, so you would have to do it repeatedly. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, exactly. You, I mean, how on earth would that not be noticed? Now there was a, there was apparently a an automated system in place that would check to see if transactions went through and then yeah. reissue them if it hadn't. But the, you'd have to assume that there was some sort of a threshold. I mean, 
unless they're just yeah that I mean un- unless the the systems were developed in such a way that that they could be exploited like this. Yeah, no, no, you're right. There has been some uh, research into this, and it does look like what they were doing is that, you know, if you try to withdraw money, it would look for the transaction ID to check if it went through. If it couldn't find that, it would just reissue it without you even have to go back there uh, to tell, I didn't get my money, Yeah, which is a very strange way of uh, structuring any change, but then e- even there, how you know, if, assuming they had a cold storage, and you know, I think Coinbase they keep like ninety-eight to seven or something percent off there, and you assume that Mt. Gox would do the same. Even then, you would notice, oh, my whole hot wallet is gone. And then, let's say they lose five percent of their bitcoins, maybe which would be high even. Well, wouldn't they ask why? Why are they all gone? Where or would you just go and bring cold wallet on and then? have that repeat it makes no sense assuming they had a cold wallet it seems impossible that through transaction availability more than a few percent let's say more than five percent at the very most of their bitcoins were stolen yeah so what you're saying is uh just like a recap transaction malleability would have only been able to affect hot wallets yeah of course right but you know who knows maybe maybe they had a cold wallet uh, <laughs> that, that maybe, wasn't so that, cold that wasn't so all. cold maybe, it would, maybe. <laughs> yeah no that's true of course maybe it was lukewarm <laughs> yeah <laughs> that that does seem to, that does seem to be a possibility maybe yes. a, a room temperature wallet <laughs> a room temperature wallet yes <laughs> uh, there's also some people looked at the blockchain of course to find evidence of transaction availability and then they couldn't find any. So there, there's definitely a suspicion that they just try to blame it on transaction availability, but the real theft went some other way. So, but it's a, but if you go through the scenario, so uh, we wrote down five scenarios. So this would be kind of number one, which is his, the official uh, Mark Kerpelis scenario, which is uh, transaction availability since 2011. We didn't notice. Now the money's gone. It seems impossible to me. But yeah, that's what they claim, at least. Um, the the scenario number two, and this is something that's been kind of on my mind for a while. I think that's a quite, I find it a pretty plausible scenario, which is that there was a large theft a long time ago, maybe 2011, or maybe not as long, maybe it was after that. And the company's basically been insolvent since then. So let's say uh, they got 700,000 Bitcoin stolen. I don't know how many they had at the time. It may not be possible. Maybe it was later. But let's say a lo- a, most of their Bitcoins were stolen. Now, users wouldn't notice that necessarily. And so if only a small percent of the users withdrew the Bitcoins, you could probably satisfy that from the rest of the Bitcoins that were on there. And if new users paid in more Bitcoins, you know, you could basically use those to fund the withdrawals of people. Yeah. So that's that would be possible to basically operate an exchange that's completely insolvent for an extended period of time. Um, and it's that fractional would also banking. Be, 
Yes, fractional banking. Thanks to it all the time. Be, it would also be consistent, or it would also be an explanation for why uh, it's often taken people such long times to get money out of there. Yeah, exactly. Because if they were short the money, they might just wait until more people pay in, and then when they ha- once more people have paid in, they can uh, fund the withdrawals. So, you know, people have been reporting waiting a month or something for to get their money out so that that would explain why that was the case of course they also claim that there's been audits and things like that and, and how on earth one would be able to do this and not uh, yeah i don't know but of course if your auditors don't understand bitcoin and you just show them some something then maybe you can Um, what's also been interesting though on Reddit there's been some research you know people have looked try to figure out is this possible when could they have been stolen and there's uh, some evidence at least that uh, they still hold some of the coins so that would be inconsistent I guess with this or, or, or maybe it was just a partial theft maybe part was stolen 2011 and a part they kind of stole themselves now Mm-hmm. That, could, that could also be possible. Now, wasn't there sort of a, I guess not an audit, but in in 2011, some some people on an IRC chat That's right. spoke yeah, yeah. with Mark and, and got him to perform a transaction to verify that the funds were still there. And through... Yeah. Um, through blockchain analysis, we were able to determine that they still had access to those funds for at least some time after that. Yeah, that's right. So I think what happened in 2011, there was a hack, and people were wondering, is Bitcoin insol- is Mt. Gox insolvent? There, there was know, a hack so, in 2011. Yeah, I think there was. Yeah, And so people were worried that uh, Mt. Gox was actually insolvent at that point already. And what they did then was that they executed some transactions from that cold storage. So, you know, he could say, okay, I'm going to send like some small amount, but with exactly that, uh, those numbers to a specific address. And so he could essentially prove that they still were in possession of those Bitcoins. And I think that was about 400,000. So, you know, very a large amount, and then that also served at the time that people said, okay, yeah, they're, they're not insolvent. And then people tried to track down after that what happened with those coins. Do they still own them? And uh, on on LTB, they they did uh, they talked about this on the last Let's Talk Bitcoin episode, and they their kind of scenario, they think that they should still have access to at least a portion of it. Yeah, but we we don't quite know. It's it's not really clear from that. But but at least uh, there have been different people looking at that and exactly what you were talking. Where you, you could basically know certain addresses at certain points belong to Mangox because you know they were funding addresses. So you pay in money into Mangox or because they used it in in different ways. You know, exchanges have certain patterns in how they use addresses. So you could figure that out. And they've used those to basically speculate that Mt. Gox may still have access to a large to large amounts of funds. Well, just because the Bitcoins are on addresses that 
Mt. Gox supposedly controls doesn't mean they have access to those private keys. Yeah, that's a great point. That's uh, where did I write that down? I think scenario number five. Let, let's get back. Let's let's do the other one first, and then we can get. This is a very interesting one. I agree. Um, but but also, if you just like think again, like if they had been insolvent since back then, um, what were they thinking? And I think if you look at a lot of their communications, it seems to be kind of, they do seem to be delusional, just just completely detached from reality. Mm-hmm. So I could totally see that they got into some complete mess and they just did not want to face the mess they were in. So they were like, I'm just going to keep going. We're just going to ignore this and keep going and hopefully we'll earn it back, you know. But that doesn't sound, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's crazy to think that, um, that 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 a company would be run like this, but that's not outside the realm of, the realm of possibility. No, I don't it, think it is. It, I think it's possible. It's completely yeah. preposterous, but it, it's completely possible that you know that they got those their Bitcoin stolen some time ago or lost access to them and have been running on on reserves like fractional banking style yeah. for the last few years and this is the reason why people can't get their money out on time and you know cuz every time they're waiting you know they're always waiting for new funds to come in yeah totally i agree and it's also kind of consistent if you look for example at this like crisis strategy draft right so if you look at the just a, a balance sheet and you're like this com- complete this company is completely ruined there's no not the slightest bit of hope but that doesn't seem to be the tone of that document. They're like, no, no, we're going to rebrand and uh, and maybe convert some funds, customer funds to equity and get some more, and then you know we'll or and then we'll be fine. And if you also if you look at this business plan, you know you see this exponential growth, and you know next year we're going to be five times higher, and then the year after five times increase our revenues per factor of five, etc. You know if you look at those, I mean. If they actually believed those absurd uh, plans, then you know perhaps they really did believe that, or they, they did pretend to themselves. Let's put it that way, and that they could get themselves out of this situation. Now, in that scenario, though, I mean, what there's forty people that work at Mt. Gox. I, I don't see yeah. how that information wouldn't have gotten out somehow. I mean, <laughs> come on. Unless, unless the people that work there are completely oblivious to what hap- what's actually going on and have no idea, which that's I've seen that mentioned in places. Uh, said that uh, Mark Carpelli is a sort of like sole, solely in charge of Bitcoin funds, etc. I don't know if that's true, but that you know that people literally would not have a clue, you know, where they were or how they were say- stored, etc. It seems crazy to. Uh, but who knows, you know? Yeah, it's... Yeah, I don't know. So, but scenario yeah. number three. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you wrote, you, you're proposing this. So, some kind of government gag order and a seize of assets, perhaps in the relationship to Silt Road. Um, I, I don't think this is very likely yeah i i don't think it's very likely either but if you know if you remember last year uh mount Gox did have a bank account frozen by 
the Department of Homeland Security with five million dollars in it, uh, and uh, you know, like let's say if we think of, for example, the Charlie Schrem arrests, uh, let's not forget, in a sense, uh, Mount Gox was much closer to the, to the actual Silk Road thing than Charlie Schrem was in Bidinstant, because Bidinstant was a way for people to fund or to put funds into Mount Gox. And then on Mount Gox, they bought the Bitcoins and sent them to Silk Road. So, you know, Bidinston was one step removed from that. So it's possible that if they went after Bidinston, why wouldn't they go after Mount Gox? I don't don't know what, what if, I mean, the U.S. government could go into, can, can they seize assets of a company in Japan? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's the most likely scenario. I think it's an unlikely scenario, but who knows? You know, it doesn't seem completely impossible. And it would explain that the communications have been abysmal. Mostly they've just not said anything or they've put out these statements that don't say anything or don't make sense. Now, if they weren't allowed to talk, then that would at least explain that. But yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a likely scenario. Yeah, but they haven't been not talking. They've been talking, and but they've been saying other things. And we've got these other documents that have been coming out, right? So this crisis strategy yeah, document is completely supposedly they didn't want this, right? I mean, what do you mean? I mean that that was supposedly that was leaked, right? I don't think it was an official document. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. But so. but it's inconsistent. I mean, what, what's? Yeah, I don't believe this this scenario. I don't think it's very okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so scenario number four is that they never got hacked, but Mark Carballis is stealing the funds. It yeah. Seems like, so yeah, it seems kind of hard to pull off. Yeah, it's certainly hard to pull off. Yeah, I mean, extremely hard to pull off. But but actually, if you also think if you think back to this crisis strategy draft thing, now that would explain that document, because if he was trying to steal the funds, that's that makes a lot of sense to produce a document like that, where you know you kind of blame it on others and you show well look at look at this they're all gone, and. Um, and of course, if he still has the funds, then then that might be a a, a way or a, an, an attempt to pull this off. But where is he going to put three hundred fifty million dollars? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It I would be the cra- biggest heist since I don't know since the banking sector heists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's crazy. I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, uh. But yeah. but what we can also what we could also imagine is some kind of hybrid case. So let's say they did get hacked and they were really low on funds and and they'd have like maybe close insolvency and there was I think someone actually said that, you know, very sure, like 90,000 90, Bitcoins are still in Mt. Gox's possession. Perhaps Marcellus is like, well, this is going down the drain anyway. Why don't I just steal the rest of it? 
So that's that could be possible. Yeah. I think I think that's not unlikely actually. And so scenario number five is that they lost access to their cold storage. So yeah. I, I I think personally that uh, it's it's not like a clear cut. You know, scenario number one, two, three, or four, or five. I think that it's uh, a, it, it may be a combination of these things. So there, they may have been hacks. They may have had some coins stolen um, in a in a hack uh, or a, a leak of their hot wallet, or if you, if you will. Uh, they may have had un um, unresponsible management of cold storage, where cold storage wasn't actually cold, but it was somehow connected to their network. Uh, and some money may have been hacked or stolen that way. Transaction malleability may have also played a part in money that they have lost. Uh, they may or not have lost access to cold storage. I think that all you know, all of these scenarios kind of put together uh, are the <laughs> <laughs> yeah no so so if you just go through this so so they got hacked 2011 lost parts of their fund then because it was so badly programmed that transaction availability also kept losing funds <laughs> then they lost access to the cold storage because Mark Capellas is such a mess <laughs> but there was still some coins so he stole the rest of it <laughs> no but I, I think this is true I mean just, just think no, it's about possible it. so, I'm so, not saying it's not impossible yeah this is a company that was founded in what 2010 2011 2010 2010, I 2010. okay and well, I, I think they became a Bitcoin ex- they were in the Bitcoin exchange at first right they weren't a Bitcoin exchange they were doing something else they were doing magic card money whatever so they're, they're most likely operating on sort of like legacy code. That PHP. May, PHP that may not be very secure, that, be, that may be badly coded. Uh, I've seen this. I mean, not at this scale, obviously, but I've worked for you know e-commerce sites. And when you, when you look at how they're coded, when you, when you look at the site, you know, everything looks nice and fine and everything. But when you, when you look at the back end, you realize it's like an old version of OS Commerce and there's so many – Vulnerabilities that can be exploited from every every which way. This is not outside the realm of possibility that things on the inside are badly managed, badly coded. Uh, security, there, you know, no security or hardly any security implementations. Things are being managed by one person, Mark Carpellis, and although he may have some technical know-how and he might be uh, 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 security. Well, I don't know if you want to call him an expert, but somebody who's worked in security maybe yeah. ha- hasn't implemented things. You know, this this happens where you say, okay, well, we've got to do this. We've got to implement this security feature or we've got to implement this security protocol, but it never gets done or it gets, keeps getting put on the back burner. No, I I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I think it's totally possible that multiple of these things happen. Yeah. I think it's, no, I think it's not unlikely. I agree. I, I think, and yeah, no, I think all all of these, and you know, if, if, even if something like cold storage, losing access to cold storage, I think that's not unlikely. You know, I mean, I I set up Armory and you know done backup, etc. And if you think about it, um, you know, and you have to have several years. It's certainly possible at some point something goes wrong. And it, the interesting thing on the on that scenario, the loss of cold storage, and so I'm I'm kind of. Referring to Let's Talk Bitcoin, the last episode, where mm-hmm. the, it's called like Gox, Gox, Gox. 
where they talk about this. So their the hypothesis there, they propose that perhaps they, you know, they put a lot of coins. So I guess the coins that they used in 2011 to show that they're not insolvent, they put those in some sort of, sort of cold storage. And then, you know, they thought they were safe there. And then they may have had transaction mailability-related thefts later. And perhaps that used up the hot wallet. And then they were like, had, wanted to go to the cold storage, you know, to get coins out to put in the hot wallet. And then all of a sudden they realized they didn't have, the, you know, the passwords or the private keys or, whatever, you know, the seed for the cold storage wallet. Mm-hmm. So it's also possible, of course. Maybe he lost his wallet card. <laughs> his wallet card? Yeah. No, I, I was, I'm, I've got I've got one of these wallet cards in my hand. Yeah, you know, yeah. The ones they were passing out at the conference. Maybe he, maybe that was their cold storage, and he yeah. had it in his wallet and lost the card. Yeah, or, or he had a, a brain wallet and he just forgot it. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe his brain wallet was like <laughs> fart or something. <laughs> Yeah, no, maybe he had like monkey one, two, three as a brain, yeah. the brain wallet seed and just some, someone figured that out. Yeah, yeah. brute forcing. Yeah, so it's crazy, you know, we still don't know. And I think we'll find this out, I'm pretty sure. And we'll probably find it out soon. Yeah. I, I hope so, at least. I think so. I think so. I think you know, more news is going to be coming out. Well, like we're definitely going to talk about this next week again. I, I think. I hope so. So if, if we go to the Mount Gox site now, so there's this announcement regarding an application for the commencement of a procedure of civil rehabilitation. An overview of the situation should be published here shortly, probably on March 3rd, 2014. So that's tomorrow. Uh, so tomorrow we're going to be getting more information but probably only in relation to the procedure of yeah civil yeah. rehabilitation but probably not like actually what's going on i think that's going to be up to mark Carpellis to tell us or more of these leaked documents to come out um now i just want to get back to like this kind of restructuring hypothesis um, okay so Mt. Gox is based in Japan. Uh, Mark is French. So is his uh, marketing director, who is apparently running the company. Uh, his name is Gonzague Gay Boucher. Or, no, anyway. Yeah, something like that. They're both French. Um, so the, the company is going through a restructuring or a, a bankruptcy protection in Japan. So they're 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 going to be protected in some way, I think, from actually having to shut down because of insolvency. Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't know exactly how it works. Okay. So, yeah. I think in in principle, at least in the U.S., I think Chapter Eleven works that way. But I don't know. So what's yeah. what's Let's just hypothesize here. What is to stop going, uh, Mark Carpellis uh, from leaving Japan, going to another country with whatever bitcoins, his customers' bitcoins, or some other bitcoins he may have somewhere, or some funds, or maybe some investment fund, and starting a new exchange there and restructuring Mount Gox's Gox in another country? No, I mean. It- I, I would put it like this. I think the scenario of him like leaving the country or some funds he's stolen and like trying to hole up somewhere 
possible. The, the scenario of him starting a new exchange is just so completely preposterous. I, I don't even know, like... <laughs> it seems crazy. I mean, it is like... <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just... It's just I, I absolutely think it's, it's completely unfathomable. You mean from, because, it, because it's him? No, it's just because this situation is... is just, you don't start a new exchange in not in a situation like this. You won't have any customers. And and plus that, I mean, think of the attacks you'll be exposed in terms of DDoS and God knows what attacks. I mean personal attacks too. Yeah. Or you know it's this I, I don't think this is a possibility at all. I, I think him running away from Japan with with the funds and the, that may be possible. Yeah, I, I don't think that he's obviously. I don't know, but I don't think that his intention is to like run off and run off with people's money and never be seen or heard from again. Like he's he, he's he's got a family and a kid, you know, like. He, He'd be putting his his life and yeah. also his wife's life and his kid's life in danger. Um, but he's already done that now. Yeah, but you know, maybe not on purpose. Maybe through yeah. uh, negligence, but not purposefully. No, I, I, I agree. I think it's more likely that he just kind of maybe got into a really messed up situation mm-hmm. because of being bad at his job or like running a badly designed exchange, etc., And that then he just made like tons of bad decisions, avoiding dealing with it and made it worse and worse. I also just want to relate it to that. I would very briefly want to talk about one thing that also this uh, Ryan Selix, a two-bit idiot, uh, mentioned. And that's that supposedly for several weeks, before um, before this tra- transaction mailability stuff, I think. Um, but I guess when they started, they stopped. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. But at some point, you know, when we had this crazy discrepancies where you had $600 Bitstamp price, but the Mangox price for Bitcoin was $200, etc., that he was using that to do uh, insider trading and, you know, to basically uh, profit himself from that. So I don't know if that's true. Can you explain any... how that would work? Yeah, so he could, you know, he let's assume there would still be some Bitcoin. Uh, let's say he had uh, s- some money in there. He could use that to buy Bitcoins in a sense on Mt. Gox and sell them on Bitsam. Of course, if, if the customers can't take Bitcoins out, or I mean, he doesn't even have to buy them, he could just take them, no? Yeah, he'd take the customers. he just take the customers' Bitcoins and sell them on another exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then maybe if he wanted to like reimburse the Bitcoins, he could come back he could take the money back in Mt. Gox and he could buy from someone for $200 a Bitcoin. So in a sense, then he would he would have arbitraged. He would have done an arbitrage and uh, 
the original Bitcoin would still be there and, and he would just have made the difference so that, you know, per Bitcoin, he could perhaps make $400 that way. Um, and of course, the, the issue is other people can do that because they can't take the Bitcoins out of Mt. Gox. But if assuming there was any Bitcoins there, he certainly was able to take the Bitcoins out of Mt. Gox. So he would have been able to do this. And this is something that could be extremely profitable. And, and I guess if he had this idea to earn back the money, maybe he was trying to do that. Of course, it's super fraudulent and extremely messed up. It's also... I don't know about Bitcoin, but if you did the same thing with stocks or any kind of security, it's insider trading and, you know, you sh- okay, most mostly people, when they do insider trading, nothing happens. It's kind of standard practice on Wall Street, perhaps. But at least in theory, you should go to jail for that. Yeah. So that's, I guess, the question is now... Uh, what will happen to Mark if he is found? Um, uh, this is this is supposing that he gets charged with something. You know, the question is, you know, will will he go to jail? Um, and also, you know, there's questions around around the short and medium and long term future of Bitcoin. How will this affect? Bitcoin in uh, in the future, like already we've seen this Joe Manchin guy, this senator in the U.S. that wants to um, have Bitcoin be banned. Like he, that's what he's proposing, and so regulators are going to start like really coming down on Bitcoin. I think within the next days and weeks because of this whole story. Like already the media has been just having a. I don't know if I see the negative. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, regulators don't move very fast, right? So this is a very slow process. Itself. No, regulators, regulators don't move fast in the sense that it takes a long time for regulation to come into effect. But politicians do speak out um, about stuff like this and, and are quite reactive. So Yeah, they may speak out, but it doesn't like from speaking out. Or, I mean, we've seen that, right? You just mentioned that this guy who wants like want to band. But but from some guy saying something to regulations a very long way. So I think, you know, let, let's say if you look at the U.S., there's been, I think, quite positive development in terms of Bitcoin regulation over the last six months. Now, even if people think, if some people think now, okay, maybe Bitcoin is doomed after all, by the time they would think of how to let that influence the legislation or the regulations of Bitcoin companies, I mean, that's going to take weeks or months. And if by the time, you know, if within three weeks we see this kind of thing has been wrapped up, it was a big fraud, but Bitcoin's fine again, you know, the, the price is not dropping more, the trading's okay, all the exchanges stepping, etc. I, I don't, I'm, I don't think it's going to have a negative effect on Bitcoin. This man Gox story, but but who knows? Yeah, you may be right. I I think that it's going to have a negative effect. I mean, already it's having a negative effect because just talk to the regular person on the street who knows very little about Bitcoin and who's only heard 
this this story in the media i mean i had this conversation with my mother a while ago who who i spoke to and hadn't spoken to in a few weeks and uh and you know asked me about this and her immediate response was well uh well, this bitcoin thing uh it's it's done and over with uh i i've had people email me and send me links to the washington post or forbes uh saying oh did you hear bitcoin got hacked um, so the, the the perception, the public perception of Bitcoin, I think the the image yeah, that people yeah. will have of Bitcoin is you know this is going to be lasting on the on public perception I, of Bitcoin. I don't know if it's going to be lasting, I. But yeah, of course, it's a negative story, etc. And uh, it's I, I agree in, in that sense, it's it's negative, and it may be negative in terms of new user adoption that some people. Maybe you were thinking about it, but now they're not anymore. They're yeah. scared. So I, I, I do think there's some effect, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to have a lasting effect. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm over, over blowing it. I mean, I, I personally, I think it's horrible for the people who have Bitcoins in there. But yeah. that's about as far as it goes. I, I don't think... Actually, I want to mention one more thing about this whole um, this whole story, and maybe a bit of a larger perspective. So, if you think, what's the effect of of this theft on Bitcoin? And one aspect I think is actually important is if somebody really stole. 700,000 Bitcoins or 800,000 Bitcoins. No, that's uh, currently, I think it's, was it 6% of the money supply? Yeah. Now, let's just think, let's just assume Bitcoin's going to be really successful. It's going to become um, a major currency, a major payment system, etc. The Bitcoin price is going to go to, I don't know, $50,000 a Bitcoin or something like that. Now, just think of the gigantic wealth that person now has. A criminal, of course. That's not good. So that's, I think that is actually, that's a bit worrying, you know. Because there comes enormous power of that kind of wealth too. And, you know, I rather that does not lie. First of all, you may have a, a worries or you may have worries in general about someone owning 6% of the money supply or, or you know, let's say it's, it'll be 4% in a few years or something. I think that's in general is uh, it's too high. It's, it's worrying. But if that's some criminal, then that's much worse. So in that sense, it would actually be the best outcome, assuming they're not found and returned to the customers. I think by a far better outcome than that they were stolen is if he lost the access to the cold storage. If that's truly destroyed, that's much, much better than if someone stole them, I think. Wouldn't we have a way through blockchain analysis to see... Uh, to, to, to to see a, a, a large transactions come out of Mt. Gox dresses and actually see if the, if all these funds have been moved from uh, addresses in Mt. Gox controls to other addresses. Yeah, I mean, that's what people have been trying to do, right? So, I mean, it's, it's hard and you can sort of do things and and what, what some people think based on that is that 
they sh- at least some of the funks should still be in control of Mount Gox. But uh, yeah, we don't know. Oh, but of course you're right. Right? Let's say so- someone has those funds. Uh, spending them will be a different issue mm-hmm. because there will be a lot of visibility. It, it would be like, let's say Satoshi starts moving his bitcoins. Now everybody's gonna have his eyes on that, and that's not gonna go unnoticed. And I think we'll have the same thing here. But still, you know, maybe maybe tools will be developed that make it possible to to anonymize bitcoins effectively. I think that's quite likely that we'll see that in the next years. And then perhaps they would be able to move them stolen funds and spend them. And I think just in terms of uh, justice and also in terms of who do you want to have power, I really hope that there's not some kind of some criminal who is now in possession of 800,000 bitcoins. But you know, say, <laughs> you say criminal, but it might just be some some kid, you know, <laughs> I mean, well, I don't want that kid either. To yeah. in, uh, and this is criminal regardless. I mean, yeah, but I mean, when, when you say criminal, you're, you're implying, you know, somebody in a, in a, in a black hood, uh, who's, uh, like a, a terrorist or, you know, something like that, but it, it could be just some kid, you know, really. I, I don't know. I, I would I would think that obviously it's a, more, a more professional you know if there was a theft that this would have been someone really professional but I don't know. Mm. So just some, in some other kind of short medium term outlooks um if if not regulation what this I think really does and I think this was the uh intention behind the the joint statement by all these exchanges is that now we've got this horrible thing that's happened and people lost money and people are now going to hold exchanges to a higher level of accountability. So I think that, uh, and I think you also share my, uh, my opinion on this is that we're, we're going to be seeing some new exchanges coming into the market with, very high level of quality and transparency in terms of uh, perhaps having access to your private keys, um, self-auditing, external auditing that's very transparent to all of the all of the users. Existing exchanges are also going to increase their level of quality and transparency and accountability in this sense. And um, in the end, once this kind of all blows over uh, and the smoke clears yes some people will have lost a lot of money but the bitcoin ecosystem as a whole would have greatly benefited from this problem or this uh yeah yeah i i agree i no, i totally agree i think we will see that i think this was happening anyway though we, we saw many new exchanges raising VC money and for the most part we haven't yet seen them you know they're not operational yet or if they are it's kind of beta or they have no liquidity etc so I mean we've already seen that, that kind of a shift from Mt. Gox style really badly bad exchanges to more high quality well funded modern exchanges so we saw that already 
And I think this was going to happen this year anyway. Now, now the transparency thing is interesting. I think you're right that we, maybe that would not have happened. And I think that will happen. I think you're right. So we will see maybe multi-signature addresses being implemented with Bitcoin exchanges. We actually talked on the Inside Bitcoins conference with Thomas Bloomer. And yeah. uh, he's, he's developing a technology to do exactly that. Or I think he has developed one. And I think CoinKite, if I'm correct, they're a, a Canadian company. They have something where they have a, they kind of make public the, or, or people can check, you know, are my funds there? You know, yeah. Through the blockchain. But so, I, yeah. I, I think that the distinction is, that, uh, of course, you know, you have companies that are, uh, that are working towards this kind of trust, higher trust, higher quality model. But now, uh, Bitcoin users and customers of those exchanges are going to have a higher level of demand and quality. It's going to come from the bottom is what I'm saying. That that, that innovation is going to be pushed uh, up from the users who are going to be demanding it. Yeah, and, yeah. No, I agree. And, it, and it's also something that maybe before you didn't see the use so much. I mean, perhaps it was something that, okay, it would be nice to have that, but... Yeah. It's not like the main priority. But now, of course, if an exchange comes and says, look, uh, you can audit all our books anytime. You can see if your funds, if our funds are here or not, etc. Um, that's powerful. And I, th- I think that will be a big advantage. I think it's not trivially implemented, though. Because as an exchange, you really, you really want to have off-blockchain trading. You can't trade on the blockchain. It's much too slow and too expensive. So I don't, I don't know how they'll do it, but I'm sure people will find a way. Mm-hmm. So should we maybe um, put this topic to rest for this week? Yes, <laughs> Talking yes. about for an hour. I mean, we, we could go on uh, for quite some time. I think we said what needs to be said for yeah. now, and then we'll come back when we know more. Yeah. Hopefully next week we'll have um, more information as to what what actually is going on I don't know. so I think you wanted to talk about uh, new and B yeah that's right so that's, I've been aware of them vaguely for quite a while new and B is a company in Cyprus and they're trying to build it's, it's kind of like a a bank infrastructure, a bank-like infrastructure based on Bitcoin. And it's it's really cool. So they were opening their first branch on Monday. So they actually have a physical branch. It looks like a bank. It looks like a regular bank branch. And they've also been doing TV advertising. I think they're doing a really good brand, a good job branding themselves uh, to a general audience. I mean, it, it feels like a bank, you know, I guess banks are good at branding themselves as this, like, here we are, you can trust us, etc. So, so um, they do some of the same things. Uh, now, about how they work, there's, they're called Neo and B, and Neo and B are actually two different businesses with two different but complementary functions. Neo is the arm where you can have customer accounts, 
so you can you know kind of hold bitcoins with them and what you can also do which is interesting is that you can have your pegged accounts so you would have let's say a thousand euros in there and but it's a bitcoin account so the bitcoin balance would go up and down um, based on the euro price so let's say uh i don't know so if you say at the moment the price is 400 euros per bitcoin right so let's say you put in uh, two bitcoins so or you put in 800 euros that's two bitcoins now if the price doubles then uh, your balance is going to be decreased to one bitcoin but if the price drops to 200 euros now your balance is going to be four bitcoins and of course they are doing that so they they would basically take that risk off you the currency risk and in that sense they're also speculating with the euro pegged accounts that the bitcoin price will increase because if the bitcoin price increases you know they get um they earn bitcoins that way okay so uh, <laughs> did you understand I, i'm trying to works? figure i'm writing this down i'm trying to figure this out so you put in say you put in 800 euros in, in an account yeah okay the current bitcoin price is 400 euros so that means obviously you have two bitcoins yeah if the price goes up say the price goes up to well 800 euros let's make things simple. yeah exactly price goes up to 800 euros now you have one bitcoin one bitcoin because they hold essentially you always hold bitcoins in your account in a certain euro value so you in this case you always hold 800 euros worth of bitcoin in that account and if it goes up you know they take some bitcoins out if it goes down they put some additional bitcoins in okay so there's actual so bitcoins being put into an account it's not just numbers corresponding to whatever value it's not just like here's what your euros are worth in bitcoins uh mm, yeah that's a good question I don't know how exactly it works technically but essentially so what, what's the advantage of this I mean the, well the, the advantage is you can use Bitcoin now you know if you want to pay somewhere and they only accept Bitcoin you can you can use it as a as a payment system so if you want to say I want to use Bitcoin as a payment system but I don't want to have anything to do with all this risk and volatility and this madness okay I just I just want to be able to pay with Bitcoin and then this is great, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you pass on the risk. They essentially they say, okay, we'll we'll take the volatile risk on us. Uh, you just you just you can just use the bitcoins. And uh, so this especially gets interesting when you talk about the second part of of their business. So you also get a chip and pin device, like a, a debit card. So you can you can use that. And now we come to the B side, so the other side, which is a merchant service. And they produce point-of-sale terminals that allows customers to pay with their debit card. So now they can use their Bitcoin accounts to pay the merchant. So essentially what they're doing is they're just building a payment network, a Bitcoin-based payment network. Okay. This is really interesting. And in in fact, um, 
this is the sort of thing that we need for you know wide mainstream adoption to occur is you know simple ways for you to be able to buy and sell bitcoins through a regular bank account without having to open up an account on an exchange um having the ability to use your bitcoins to pay for stuff and vice versa uh to be able to transfer just you know easily from one type of currency to the next this this is really interesting yeah, no, I agree. I think it's it's cool. And uh, you know, it, it would be nice if just regular banks would start doing this too. Maybe they will at some point. I'm sure they will. Yeah. But I, yeah, they will be they will be last ones, right? They will mm-hmm. be after after other companies have done it and it works, etc. Then they may start doing it. Well, but you know, I can would- see, I can see, like uh, for instance, a lot of regular kind of. Uh, Bank institutions such as, like in France, like La BNP or La Société Générale, or, you know, these banking institutions have been there for a very long time and have large infrastructure and high costs. Um, they've branched off and created online versions of their banks where you can essentially just create an account uh, online. You get a bank card. There's zero fees, but you don't have access to a physical bank and you don't have access to... Uh, you don't have a like um, account like a a personal banker. You have a call center, or even worse, you have a chat that you can have access to. So I can see these banks kind of getting into this. This is kind of a way for regular banking institutions through these subsidiaries, where perhaps they have much lower costs and less risk, um, get involved in Bitcoin. Yeah, I with think a clientele just- with a clientele that's going to be mostly just young people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fedor Bank is a bit like that, right? In Germany, they they work with Bitcoin DE, and they they don't have branches, and it's very much a a bank that's focused on young people who are interested in technology, you know, kind of know what's going on. Uh, so, and of course, they're very they are working with Bitcoin in a variety of ways. Hmm. How how are they working with Bitcoin? So they they are partnering with Bitcoin DE. So Bitcoin DE is is kind of like it's not really a Bitcoin exchange. It's, it's like a peer to peer Bitcoin trading site. So you can, you know, if I want to buy Bitcoins of Bitcoin DE, I can go. There will be someone offering, and I say, okay, I want to buy from you. Then his Bitcoins are put in escrow, and I send my bank transfer to him. When he confirms, I get the Bitcoin. Uh, they're the largest. Um, Bitcoin exchange type thing in, in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, they are you know because this is a financial service so they working with Fedor for the um, their banking license or their license right now what Fedor is also going to do is if I trade with you and we both have a Fedor account you can trade Bitcoins instantly oh cool right so because they just adjust balances on both sides so because they're integrated with Bitcoin DE so you can adjust the bank balances to know the money's there you don't have to wait and they know the Bitcoins are there so that's pretty cool and uh, they're also interested apparently into in Bitcoin derivatives and they are also the banking partner for Kraken Hmm. so yeah they're they're quite active there I'm looking at the website they seem to be quite um 
I can't read German, but <laughs> uh, I see words like peer-to-peer credit, <laughs> crowdfunding. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. And they have like there's sort of social gaming and and uh, yeah, I don't know. They they but they're very progressive. So uh, oh, seems that way. But maybe uh, if you just say a few more things about the Cypress thing. I think what's interesting, if you look at what they're trying to do, which is put point of sales terminal in with merchants, this is really expensive to do. So one, they have to produce those point of sales terminals, but maybe more expensive, they have to convince all those merchants to put those in and then they have to explain how they work. This requires so much time and so many employees. Um, so, <laughs> so it's interesting that they do this in Cyprus, which I think makes a lot of sense because Cyprus is a small place. So you can, you can buy TV advertisement there for a little money. You know, if, if you did the same thing in France, it would be extremely difficult. And that makes it, I think that makes it a good decision to do things there. Well, the way there's actually a chance that they get some kind of coverage that they actually have a decent amount of customers and they have a decent amount of merchants. And well, it's on top of that in Cyprus, of course, that last year there was the financial crisis and um, people lost huge amounts of money. And what he also had was that the um, banks collapsed. And what they did was they took money from people's savings accounts to pay for the disaster. So uh, the trust in the existing banking system is perhaps lower than anywhere else in the world in Cyprus. So I think that those things together makes it much more likely to, s- to sign up for a new thing. And the small area makes it much easier to sign up merchants. So I think what they're doing is something that has a chance in Cyprus but that would be really expensive to do in a big market. In the U.S., doing this would be... I think it's too early for that. I don't think there's a chance... Maybe in a year from now, you could you could do this. Yeah. But right now, this would just be too expensive. But yeah, and also, like, the the guy who's behind this... Um, this NeoNB bank, he did... A, he, he was on LTB a few weeks ago. He spoke at a conference, and... This was very much kind of the vision, right? Was to kind of destructure, uh, create create something that is so far removed from the banking, the you know, traditional kind of banking sector in Cyprus, uh, in which people have completely lost trust in. Uh, I, I think this is the kind of underlying vision behind this: is to rebuild with a new type of bank. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. They don't do, they don't do lending, for example, yet. Right. Maybe they will. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's cool. And but yeah, so I I think there's I think there's actually if if there is one place right now where I could see something like what they're trying to do work, then I think that's Cyprus. So I'm, I'm very, extremely interested in how this is going to turn out. And if it does work, of course, there's a chance of them scaling that to other countries. I think they do want to do that. And it will, it will be fantastic if, if they can make this work. Yeah, they're in Europe, so it would be easy for them to branch off into other countries. Yeah, that's from, true. From a regulatory point of view and 
Uh, yeah. Okay. So just quickly want to cover uh, transaction fees. So we'll just cover this quickly because we're running kind of long here. So as, as was the case a few months ago in May, uh, transaction fees are going to be reduced in the next version of the QT client. So right now, we're tra- uh, the minimum average transaction fee is around $0.05 cents, uh, of a U.S. dollar. And this latest patch would make transaction fees reduced to half a cent. And wh- so why this happens is because as the price of Bitcoin goes up, well, transaction fees um, come down. Um, and so what's interesting about this is that this gets decided from this gets decided by Bitcoin developers, right? So uh, Mark Hearn and company. And what we were discussing earlier just before the show is a scenario in which this would be somehow decided by the market, right? So kind of an auction where by which you can essentially um, bid on the price of transactions and the price of a transaction to be included in the next block. Yeah, although, of course, this this would really have to be something that kind of goes on in an automated way because nobody actually wants to, you know, you don't want people to have to think should I pay this amount of transaction mm-hmm. or that? Or So there would have to be some other mechanism. Absolutely. But the interesting, the, the, the problem just right now is these core developers, they got together and said like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there to there. And it's really an arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. They could have chosen some other number and they, just as well. And that does not seem to be optimal. It seems... A much more efficient way would be if somehow the demand, you know, the, the number of transactions that people want to do and the capacity of the miners and those things came together and somehow a market rate would be determined. And then what you might also have is that people say, okay, it's not that important for me that my transaction is going to be confirmed quickly, so I'm going to pay less but uh, maybe I'll wait if there's a lot of demand from other people. Mm-hmm. And some people, if they want to be, if it's a high priority transaction, they would pay more. It, that's just a fault. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that won't be necessary if the network is at not that capacity and you can always confirm all of them in the first block. I don't know. But it just, it seems in general, and I, th- I think that's something people are working on as well is, that there needs to be another way of determining transaction fees. Yeah. No, I think I agree with this, is that we need to figure out a way in which it's kind of embedded within the protocol and uh, essentially the, the, the market decides what the price of the transaction fees are. It's not up for core developers to... I mean, this is work. This works for now, but as Bitcoin becomes uh, more mainstream and more people start using it and you know, prices yeah. go up, that's not going to scale anymore. I, I think that's a really important point here is actually that right now, if you look at the revenues miners generate, they are the vast majority is from mining new blocks. 
So transaction costs are actually not that important for them right now. But that's going to change in the future. So if you have the, you know, the mining reward, I think the block reward is halved again, if I'm correct, in 2017. So when the block rewards go down over time, of course, transaction costs become much more important for miners. Absolutely. So then a decision like this is going to be, at the moment, I think it doesn't matter that much. But at some point it will. And that's just not a power that the core developers should have. Yeah. No, I agree. Okay, so maybe we should call that a show. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. It was uh, lots of fun to do this, and I'm sure we'll come back to this topic once again, probably next week. <laughs> Most likely, yeah. Yeah. So we, we hope you've been enjoying the content we've been releasing uh, from the conference. Uh, we're releasing another episode of interviews on Wednesday, so be sure to listen to that one, and then there will be some... There'll be two more episodes uh, after that with uh, talks that we recorded also. So uh, if you like them, comment. We're on SoundCloud now, so you can easily comment there on uh, on the SoundCloud player. Also, please give us a tip. You can tip us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips, and you can find our Bitcoin address, our Litecoin address, and our Dogecoin address there. Indeed. And if you want to sign up for a newsletter, we send out... Every Friday, a newsletter on the you know, latest news and developments and kind of most important things that happened in the Bitcoin world. So you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at epicenterbtc, so twitter.com slash epicenterbtc. Thanks for, getting, for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week.